Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please stand, we'll begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil amen in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit amen please join me in welcoming a wonderful professor thank you very much thank you so much deacon sabatino what I thought uh, we, we would do this week is do the really tough stuff. Go over some of the metaphysical and philosophical conceptions that are at stake in this issue. Because what is being contested here is not just some particular sexual practice, but the very nature of reality itself. One wonders, as the estimates generally are that there are only 2% of the population that may have these homosexual proclivities, and of that number, of, uh, an even smaller minority would wish to get married. We know that from the evidence in Canada and the Netherlands where they've been able to do this for some time. So well, why is anyone bothering? Why are we discussing this here tonight? It's because the case they make for homosexual marriage contests the nature of reality. And that's what we're going to spend a good part of tonight discussing. If we have time, we can also go through how the rationalization for homosexual behavior has worked its way through the institutions of American life. And certainly the court system of the United States, we could go over some of the cases in the Supreme Court that led up to this terrible decision from late June. Next week, this book came out a little over a year ago, a year ago May. I'm sorry to say that it predicts exactly what has happened because the logic uh, of it was more or less inescapable. But next week, what I would like to do is cover what has happened in this past year and also analyze this decision and what it portends for our future, for our country, and for our children. Some of the effects are already uh, taking place. Now, I want to tell you the reason I wasn't at all upset that Deacon Sabatino, quoted from St. Paul, is the book, Making Gay Okay, and I always rush in with the subtitle, How Rationalizing Homosexual Behavior is Changing Everything. My teenage daughter, by the way, came up with the title to this book. That's what they're doing, Dad. They're making gay okay. Um, the reason why I wasn't uh, preempted by this quote from St. Paul is that there, are, there is no scripture in this book. There, is, there are no references to religion. It makes the argument for natural marriage and against unnatural marriage simply based upon what we can know through our reason about what constitutes human flourishing. My dear friend, Father James Shaw, the great Jesuit who taught for so many years at Georgetown, who represents what that order was at its finest, I sent him a notice from an evangelical reviewer of this book. As you know, many evangelicals are not strong on natural law. They've abandoned natural law. 
And since this book is based on natural law, some of them don't know quite what to make of it. But this one evangelical said, who would have thought that an argument from natural law could so fully support and explicate what the gospel teaches? So I sent this to my friend, Father Shaw, and he said, no, no, he has it exactly backwards. There is no Christian teaching about homosexual acts that isn't based on natural law. And what scripture does is simply confirm what God has already taught us through the creation he has given us. And it's there especially for minds that become confused by vice. Which brings us to Aristotle. Aristotle says something very interesting in the politics. He said, men start revolutions for reasons connected to their private lives. One might expand upon his statement just a little by saying, men start cultural revolutions for reasons connected to their private lives. What might those reasons be? And why do they require revolutionary changes? This is all bound up in the process of rationalization with which we are all familiar. I have certainly done a number of wrong things in my life. Perhaps there are a few other non-saints in the room or not yet saints. (laughs) And you will know what you do before you choose something that otherwise you would know was evil. You present it to yourself as a good. And indeed, there always is something good in what you choose, but you take it out of the moral context. This guy has a little too much cash in his pocket. I think I'll take some. That would be adhering to the principle of equality, so I'll have some of that money. I love that man's wife more than he does. I need to console her. I mean, you know, whatever it is, what one does is rationalize in order to choose. Aristotle said man is incapable of choosing anything that is not good, that doesn't appear to him as good. So that's what happens during the process of rationalization. Now afterwards, it frequently is the case that moral reality reasserts itself. The person admits I just committed adultery. I just stole that money. That's wrong. Feels remorse, repents, makes restitution if it's possible, and the moral order is restored. However, what happens if someone chooses to base their life upon a moral disorder? What if you want to become a professional thief? Then you have to have a more expansive rationalization in order to continue that activity that denies your conscience the opportunity to reassert the moral reality which you are violating. This is true of sexual disorders, a sexual misbehavior as well. And it certainly applies to active homosexuals. If you want to base your life, if you're an active male homosexual, on the act of sodomy, you have to transform sodomy into a good. And you have to be sufficiently persuasive with yourself that you do not allow your conscience to interrupt your rationalization. In fact, that's what Aristotle tells us happens to people who not only do something evil, 
but who do it often enough that it becomes a vice. And the vice is sustained by the solidity of the rationalization that replaces the person's conscience and allows them to continue it. Now there's another problem. If you're going to live publicly according to what is otherwise considered evil, others may reproach you and say, wait a minute, that's, adultery is wrong. You know, the stealing is wrong. You can't do that. Sodomy is an inherently morally disordered act. That may trigger a reproach in your own conscience. So in order to protect your rationalization, what you must do is universalize it. You must insist that others share the rationalization that misrepresents reality by saying that something evil is something good. And this is the process we have seen working its way through American society since the sexual revolution began. What we are seeing is the culmination of a series of rationalizations about the misuse of our sexual powers. Sex outside of marriage, contraception, pornography, abortion. Well, why not? Why not this? So how is it that this tiny part of the population has been able to universalize its rationalization since most people do not engage in this peculiar behavior? Here is the inner dynamic at work. If you rationalize my sexual misbehavior, I'll rationalize your sexual misbehavior. Got it? Heterosexuals who have been misusing their sexual powers outside of marriage or not getting marriage, people who have made pornography a part of their lives, share in the underlying rationalization that homosexuals have. If you look at the media of the United States today and the, the lack of religious belief, the number of serial marriages, uh, the, the kind of life that is typical, you will see that in order to have lived that kind of life for as long as they did, they needed rationalizations for their homosexual misbehavior. And their rationalizations are not uh, essentially different from the distortion of reality in which homosexual rationalization takes place. So do you see the dynamic? I'll rationalize your, homo your sexual misbehavior if you'll rationalize my, my, my sexual misbehavior. And so the sources of support grow lar larger. And so we saw the rationalization march through American society and then its institutions. It became part of the entertainment industry. It became part of the intellectual life in journals and newspapers and editorials. Then it worked its way through certain religious institutions and churches. Then it worked its way through the upper reaches of the corporate world, has it not? Remember the reaction to the Indiana law to protect religious freedom and the major corporations who decried it and said, well, we'll never do business in Indiana? So the corporate world, they're gone. The business world is gone. The arts world is gone. The press is gone. The media are gone. I had the occasion more than a year ago to talk with the priest from this diocese invited by Father Scalia. And after going over some of this with them, I said, you're the last man standing, the church. 
this institution, these people, these brave priests and deacons, and you as lay people. We're the last men standing, and so you may count they will be coming after us. In order to secure the universalization of the rationalization, and we are now in the enforcement phase. The Institute for Catholic Culture, I may assure you, is one of the few organizations in this country today that would sponsor such a talk and allow me to speak. And that includes many Catholic venues. We have seen the means of enforcement exercised socially. We've seen it exercised professionally, people who have lost their jobs. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to see it enforced legally, not only as it has been in certain states where people have lost their businesses for so-called discrimination, but now the Supreme Court has fabricated homosexual marriage as a civil right. So now the weapon is in hand to use to approach any institution in person and make a demand upon them to accede to this rationalization or suffer the consequences. And those of you who may think, by the way, that having achieved what seems to be the ultimate goal after which the homosexual movement went, that is, the acknowledgement of homosexual marriage, finding it implicit in our Constitution, that they will be less fervent, that, that the militancy will now die down. No. No, no. Homosexual marriage was never the objective. As, you, as I mentioned, the, the, the tiny minority of active homosexuals will actually avail themselves of this marriage. The ultimate objective is the, universaliz the enforcement of the universalization of their rationalization. So no one can contest it. No one can endanger their rationalization. And that requires the imposition of it upon us, the forced imposition of it upon us. I'm very much reminded of 1935 Germany and the passage of the Nuremberg Laws in that year, which stripped Jews of their citizenship and forbade Jews to marry non-Jews. There were many fine Catholics in Bavaria, fine Lutherans, Christians in Germany, who probably said to themselves at that time, well, we lost this one on the racial theory of history. You know, it's a law now. We better just move on. Better let that one go and worry about a jobs program or something else. And no doubt they would wish to have moved on and not think about it because had they examined the full implications of what was happening in Germany, they could have foreseen the horror ahead. And I suggest to you that the distortion of reality and life that is contained in these Supreme Court rulings is nonetheless dire than were represented in 1935 with the Nuremberg Laws. Now, back to Aristotle. This contest, philosophically and metaphysically, is conducted over two notions of reality. One is teleological, and one is non-teleological or anti-teleological. One says, Oh, as Aristotle said, man does not make himself to be man. He's the given. Man does not make himself to be man. He has his nature as a given. He doesn't get to make himself up, despite what this Caitlin creature did by disfiguring his body. He or she or it is a perfect illustration of the anti-teleological understanding of reality that denies that ends or purposes exist inherently 
in the nature of things. And therefore, we get to assign them whatever purposes we wish to according to our wills and the skill of our surgeons. Now, before I go a little further into that, let's start with the beginning of the politics, Aristotle and the politics. How does the politics begin? With an isolated person? Someone off by themselves? No. It begins with a man and a woman in marriage, in what Aristotle calls a union. It is clear from his presentation that the family, a man and a woman together in a family, is the pre-political institution of society. It is the fundamental unit, it's the fundamental cell, because it is the association of families that then creates a village, and it's an association of villages that then creates a city. The city, the polis, Aristotle says, is that which is necessary for man to fulfill his full potential, because only in a city can you do this. The family is the foundation stone, but the family can't provide everything to the full development of man's potentials. However, you can't break down things less than the man and the woman together in a marriage. So what, Aristotle asks, is the principle of the family. What's the principle of the family? And he answers that the principle of the family is chastity. Because chastity is that principle which regulates the sexual relations between the husband and the wife, without which a marriage could not exist. And since chastity is the principle of the family, chastity becomes the political principle. Why? Because there can be no polis without families. Any, any violation, therefore, of this principle of chastity becomes a threat to the political order. We don't find that too hard to believe today, do we? Let me just read this to you so you can get some flavor of what Aristotle says here. <clears throat> so violations of chastity undermine the family and by undermining the family, they undermine the political order. All right? Therefore, Aristotle finds particularly offensive adultery. Here's what he says, quote, for husband or wife to be detected in the commission of adultery, at whatever time it may happen, in whatever shape or form, during all the period of their being married and being called husband and wife, must be made a matter of disgrace. Not no-fault divorce. It must be made a matter of disgrace. Now listen to this. But to be detected in adultery during the very period of bringing children into the world is a thing to be punished by a stigma of infamy proportionate to such an offense." Unquote. Chastity is the political principle. Adultery or sex outside of marriage is the violation of this principle. Now, why doesn't Aristotle talk about homosexual families? Because such a notion was inconceivable to him or to any Greek or to anyone until 10 years ago. And the reason is because Aristotle believed in the principle of non-contradiction, that a thing can't both be and not be in the same way, in the same time, in the same place. A thing cannot be what it is and it's opposite, right? Now, any act of sodomy is a violation, by definition, a violation of chastity. How, therefore, could you make a violation of chastity the principle of the family when the principle of the family is chastity? 
You see the violation of the principle of non-contradiction? Therefore, Aristotle doesn't discuss such an absurdity. All he does say, by the way, is, quote, sex between males is among the diseased things, like the habit of plucking out the hair or the gnawing of the nails, or even coals or earth, which may arise in some by nature and in others as in those who have been victims of lust from childhood or from habit, unquote. By the way, I want you to also please take note of the fact that this Aristotelian understanding of the family as the pre-political institution was shared by the founders of the United States. I want to give you a little taste of that from James Wilson, one of our greatest founders, one of the few who signed both the Declaration and the Constitution. Here is what James Wilson, James Wilson said of the family, quote, it is the principle of the community. It is that seminary on which the commonwealth for its manners as well as for its numbers must ultimately depend. As its establishment is the source, so its happiness is the end of every institution of government which is wise and good." Unquote. In order to be the source of every institution of government, the family must precede every institution of government. In other words, the government doesn't make the family possible, the family makes government possible. The government doesn't assign the ends of marriage to the family, they pre-exist the government and transcend it. In fact, the ends of marriage are not defined by man either, but they are given in nature, as Aristotle, among others, taught us. Now, Socrates, by the way, was a little more explicit about the subject of sodomy. You often hear about this, this romantic notion of homosexuality in ancient classical Greece, that it was open and accepted, and this, this is a distortion of history. And it's particularly ironic that the homosexual movement tries to use this period of history because this is when philosophy began. It's when moral philosophy began. And its two greatest progenitors, Socrates and Aristotle, most particularly Socrates and Plato, unqualifiedly condemned sodomy. In Plato's last book, the, the Laws, the Athenian speaker says, quote, I think that the pleasure is to be deemed natural, which arises out of the intercourse between men and women, but that the intercourse of men with men or of women with women is contrary to nature and that the bold attempt was originally due to unbridled lust. Unquote. See, we didn't even need St. Paul there. <laughs> you know, what, 450 years before St. Paul? Now listen to this. This is also from the laws. I had an idea for reinforcing the law about the natural use of the intercourse which procreates children abstaining from the male, not deliberately killing human progeny, or sowing in rocks and stones, where it will never take root and be endowed with growth, abstaining, too, from all female soil in which you would not want what you have sown to grow. We all know what he's talking about here. <laughs> this law, when it has become permanent and prevails, if it has rightly become dominant in other cases, just as it prevails now regarding intercourse with parents, I mean, no one would pro possibly propose that, confers innumerable benefits. In the first place, it has been made according to nature. Also, it affects a debarment from erotic fury and insanity, all kinds of adultery, and all excesses in drink and food, and it makes men truly affectionate to their own wives. Other blessings we could also ensue, infinite in number. 
Now, the ancient Greeks, Aristotle, Plato, understood that the order of a city is dependent on the order of the soul, and that a disordered soul would lead to political disorder. That's why Aristotle said that the end of the city is the life of the good, of the common good, and of the virtuous man. They understood and was dramatized at the time in works like the Bacchae by Euripides that sex outside the moral order brings death. Sex outside the moral order brings the destruction of your city. As Thebes in the Bacchae ends up destroyed because its king Pentheus gives in to his lusts. So they understood very clearly the relationship between sexual moral order and the political order. We haven't even gotten out of chapter one here. <laughs> I'm going to jump a bit ahead here. Just quickly, just as Aristotle said we have inbuilt purposes according to, the way, to, to our nature, the way we're made. So the opponents of this view, which became prominent in the 18th century, most particularly with Rousseau, said the opposite. Said man's beginning is his end. He doesn't have any ends he's ordered to. How does Rousseau begin his second discourse that explains the origins of society the way Aristotle did in the politics? Oh, he takes a somewhat different tack. It doesn't begin with a man and a woman and family. It begins with man alone in the forest or the jungle. And exactly how was man doing at that time? Well, Rousseau said he was, he was perfectly happy. The sentiment of his own existence sufficed to himself that he was like God. He didn't need anybody. Social, man, he was not a rational political animal. Social order and political order was not natural to this man. Neither was reason. So what happens? What happens is someday, by accident, he bumps into somebody else in the forest. And this association begins the start of society, which is not natural to man. And through this association, man loses that sentiment of his own existence, which was so sufficient that he was like God. And he begins living in the estimation of the other person. He becomes a slave to the other person's estimation of him. What needs to be emphasized here is the accidental nature of society and therefore the accidental nature of politics and therefore the accidental nature of the family. Listen to this one. Here's Rousseau, second discourse. No, discourse on the origin of inequality. He's talking about the man, the pre-rational, pre-social man in the forest. Quote, there was one appetite which urged him to perpetuate his own species. And this blind impulse, devoid of any sentiment of the heart, produced only a purely animal act. The need satisfied the two sexes recognized each other no longer. And even the child meant nothing to the mother as soon as he could do without her." Unquote. So if the man bumps into the woman in the forest a couple weeks later, wouldn't even recognize her. Could you, could you imagine anything at, at greater odds to Aristotle? In other words, the family is not natural to man. The family is accidental. Therefore, the family is a matter of convention. And as a matter of convention, it can be changed. So according to Rousseau and the school of his thought, there's no problem with redefining marriage to include homosexuals or really anybody else. Because there's nothing natural about marriage. The ends of marriage are not defined by nature. They're assigned by man accidentally, 
in a convention that he simply makes up, and therefore he can change that convention. Do you see where that's coming? Let's start talking about man's nature then and what this means. What is the standard we should use to measure things regarding man's nature and end, and how do we discern what is in accord with man's nature and what is not? Aristotle states that, quote, in order to find out what is natural, we must look among those things which according to nature are in a sound condition, not among those that are corrupt. Thus, the human being to be studied is one whose state is best, both in body and soul. In him, this is clear. Now, what does, what does Aristotle mean here? Well, let's make an analogy. Let's say he was talking about racehorses. And he said to one, find out what's natural. We must look at those things according to nature in a sound condition. And we must look at the one uh, to be studied is the one whose state is best. Well, who would that be? It would be American Pharaoh. Right? He wins a triple crown. So if you want to understand the perfection of a horse, you study American Pharaoh. You don't study a horse that's crippled in two legs. Because the fulfillment of the horse's nature, in other words, a horse which has reached perfection and can be no better than a horse by nature can be, uh, lets you know that American Pharaoh is that horse and that a horse that's limping isn't a perfect horse, right? That it's suffering from some accident. Now, when we know things in their perfection, uh, this, because we know what a human being is in the fullest, we can understand what a privation is. Again, for instance, let's say 2020 vision is perfect. Actually, 2010 is more perfect than 20, but let's, for the sake of argument, say 2020 vision is perfect. In other words, your eye can't see better than 2020. Your eye has no more potential. It's reached its full actuality. If that's the perfection of the eye, we know an eye that sees less well is suffering from a privation of the eye. And that the ultimate privation of the eye would be what? Blindness. Okay. In respect to a man's sexual powers, which are both unitive and generative, can't be generative unless it's unitive. It, by unitive, it is by nature generative. In respect to a man's sexual powers, the one whose state is best would be a man as husband and father. Just as for a woman, it would be as wife and mother. That would be the perfection of these sexual powers in the man and in the woman. They reach their full potential in both a unitive and in a generative way. Right? That means that anything less than that is a privation. Let's say the generative side doesn't work, or it doesn't work well. Well, what do we see sprinkled across the United States fertility clinics? What is the purpose of the fertility clinic? Well, to try to restore the generative powers of either the man or the woman so they can generate. You know, I gave a talk up at First Things a year ago, June, um, explicating the natural law thesis, and a woman blogger who was in the audience who blogs for First Things had a somewhat uh, snide comment afterwards and said this idea of natural law Riley has uh, you know, not after Sartre and Andre Gide. I mean, we don't, no one's going to buy that stuff. And I only wish uh, I could have replied to her. There was no reply option. But had I seen her uh, or known what she was going to say in the audience, I, I would say, now, oh, the natural law, that's passe. 
I see you're wearing glasses. Yes. Well, how'd you get those? Well, I went to the optometrist, to the ophthalmologist. Well, why would you do that? Well, so he could improve my sight. Well, well how, how did he know how to improve your sight? Well, he, he studied the eye. Oh, you mean he knows the eyes for seeing? He knows the eyes to see? Well, well, yes. And therefore, because he studied the eye, he knows that you're suffering from a privation of the eye, and he's going to, through his science, trying to bring it closer to perfection. Is that right? Well, I guess so. Well, welcome to the world of natural law. <laughs> Anybody confused over our hearing in that respect? Tell children, don't store pencils in your ear? Well, why not? Well, because you may go deaf and your ear is not made to store pencils. <laughs> so what, it's only when we get below the waist that people go, well, what, what could these be for? <laughs> I guess we get to make that up. Let's try to put it here or put it there. Well, as it turns out, it's just as clear in nature what our sexual powers are for as it is what our ears are for, what our eyes are for. And it's just as clear from the natural end of man, which as Aristotle taught is happiness achieved through a life of virtue, requires the proper and natural use of all the gifts God has given us and therefore will be subverted by vice. Now we know that homosexual acts are a privation of, our, of human sexual powers because they can be neither unitive or procreative. Therefore they are a privation like a withered limb, congenital deafness, blindness, or a genetic predisposition to alcoholism, homosexual inclinations are not part of what a human being is in his essence. They are accidental, not essential properties. If you have a withered limb, that's, that's accidental, not essential. You don't redefine what arms are for because you have a withered limb. You know it's withered because you know what an arm is for. For instance, the limb ought to be able to move in its full strength, the ear ought to be able to hear, and the eye to see. The further a thing is from its perfection, the more defective, or what Aristotle uses, corrupt it is. Just as blindness is the furthest defect of an eye with 20-20 vision, a privation of a good. cannot itself be good. In fact, as St. Augustine said, evil is a privation of the good. Now, when Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, announced that, quote, I'm proud to be gay, and I consider being gay among the greatest gifts God has given me, unquote, he substituted a privation of the good for the good itself. This is a metaphysical travesty. Would, for instance, an alcoholic say, I'm proud to be an alcoholic, and I consider being an alcoholic among the greatest gifts God has given me? <laughs> well, he might if he's an AA and he's recovered from you know, his alcoholism, but I don't think that's what Tim Cook meant, do you? His inversion, uh, this kind of inversion is typical of the homosexual rationalization and was used by Cook in his subsequent attack on the Indiana Religious Freedom Law. Soon it may be a condition of doing business in the United States that one accepts the moral legitimacy of the views expressed by Tim Cook, that a privation of the good is at least equivalent to the good of which it is a privation. This, of course, is an offense against the principle of non-contradiction. Unless blindness is the same as sight, 
One cannot say that the use of sexual organs in a way unfit for either generation or union is the same as their use for generation and union. Sodomy is to sex what blindness is to sight. You see the natural law application of this now? By the way, as one would expect from an unnatural use of our sexual powers, the body rebels. Just as the ear would rebel if you kept sticking pencils in it. And how is that rebellion of the body manifested? In disease. Did you know that syphilis was almost wiped out in the United States? And only in the past year or two has it become an epidemic? And do you know that epidemic is almost wholly confined to what is euphemistically referred to as SMS? No, MSM, males having sex with males. It is rampaged because of homosexual acts. As was true before HIV AIDS ever appeared, the average life expectancy of active homosexuals clipped a couple decades off the life of its practitioners. An exit isn't an entrance. If you put a generative organ in an excretory organ, the body becomes confused, rebels. Uh, we don't have time for me to read to you the list of diseases uh, that result as an occasion, as, as a result of this kind of behavior. You know, there are all kinds of love. There's parental love, sisterly love, brotherly love, the love of friendship, avuncular love. To which of these kinds of love is sexual expression appropriate? Parental love? It's grotesque. There you heard Plato saying it's just, no, it's not even no one, the most degenerate person won't do this. Uh, sisterly, brotherly love, what? How do you know which, which of those relationships, which of those loving relationships has naturally to it a sexual expression? It's very easy to tell. Can that expression be unitive and generative? No? Well, then that's nature's way of tapping us on the shoulder and saying, that's not spousal love. That's some other kind of love. I don't think there's anything wrong with two women loving each other or two men loving each other. The only thing that's wrong is if they sexualize that love. How do we know? Again, because that love can be neither unitive nor generative. Now, what is particularly grotesque, I have to tell you, I just canceled my subscription to the Washington Post because I can't take it anymore. And I'm sick and tired of having to, having to hide it from my children. Yes, so now we know. Well, here, here's a typical thing from this year. Uh, from the Washington Post on a Sunday uh, by a woman. I'm gay and I want my kids to be gay too. Another variation on the Apple CEO, Tim Cook, right? Great gift from God. So I wish to bestow this privation on my children. And that's called parental love? So you see the magnitude of the distortions that this introduces into life. Now, I'll t I, we don't have time because, yep, yeah, I could see the other time card is about to come up. But I have had um, exchanges with some homosexuals on the internet. I've written frequently for this. Uh, do you know the MercatorNet.com site? You know, it's, well, you should know it. It's outstanding. It's out of Australia. It's extremely good. 
MercatorNet, M-E-R-C-A-T-O-R-N-E-T.com. And um, occasionally I'll enter into the discussions uh, with the outraged homosexuals who are reacting to articles I've written. And what becomes clear is they've bought the anti-teleological notions of Rousseau, that there are no inbuilt ends in the way we're made, that we get to, to make that up. Here's one. But you obviously cannot deny that the purpose of semen is to fertilize the egg. The homosexual. Oh, yes, I, I can deny it. I just did. <laughs> Voila. So the, de- the denial of um, reality uh, becomes ever more complete. I just want to read this one to you from someone else reacting to my book. Where I disagree is with the tra- traditional assumption that natural, that natural entities have inbuilt purposes. This is a mere assumption, not something that has been discovered. <laughs> you ever go to a doctor, pal? Do you never... <laughs> the assumption results from projecting the way we create our own artifacts onto the creative activity of nature. Without this assumption, the natural law case made against homosexuality fails. It does indeed, if there's no natural law. To truly support his argument, Riley would have to prove, all in uppercase, prove that this age-old assumption is the actual truth of living things. I would assert this to be an impossible task as living things are as ultimately purposeless as everything else in the universe. Now, do you see the price? Do you see the price that is paid for this rationalization? The only way it can be sustained is within the view of a purposeless universe. A very high price to pay, you may think. But if you're not willing to pay it, the rationalization for it collapses. I just got a minus zero, so I have to stop here. Thank you. When your eyes are closed, when you're asleep, is your eye no longer an organ of sight? Even if you're blind, it's still an organ of sight. It's just suffering from the ultimate privation of that organ of sight. How often does conception take place uh, between a married couple? Well, not that often. Are the acts of, are the marital acts from which conception does not result, therefore not generative? No. Are they then like sodomy? No. They are generative by their nature in the same way that an eye is still an organ of sight when it's not seeing, so the marital act is still by nature generative when it doesn't generate. It's only accidentally not generating because it may not be the fertile period for the woman. It's, it's, it, but by nature, it is generative. Does that help? I'm sorry, I answered with more than one <laughs> sentence. Mr. Riley, I suspect that this will be a question for your second talk, but uh, with relating to the two Supreme Court cases uh, on this subject that immediately recently occurred, uh, in the decision last year vacating DOMA, Justice Kennedy stated his rationale was that marriage is uh, traditionally a province that is exclusively left to the states, a position that he seems to have vacated in Obergefell. Uh, Can you comment on uh, this particular aspect of the case? I will will simply, I'll give you a a preview, though, a a preview here. When we're going to discuss and examine next week why the pro-natural family side has lost in court, why in almost every appellate decision it's lost, why it's lost, at the Supreme Court several times, 
we're going to talk about the way in which the case was presented, what those briefs actually said. And they more or less restricted themselves exactly to the procedural issue of whether it's constitutional for the states to decide what, uh, to make marriage laws and not the federal government. And because they restricted their briefs to that, or came close to restricting it to that, that was very much like the Stephen Douglas position on slavery. In his debates with Lincoln, that it was a state's rights issue. There's nothing wrong inherently with slavery, so let the state decide if it wants to have slavery, it votes in slavery. If it doesn't, it doesn't. It's state's rights. The pro-family movement took that approach to this issue, and that's why they lost. Because they never said there's something inherently, they never analogously said there's something inherently wrong with slavery itself. Therefore, it is not susceptible to just a state's rights solution. That was more than a preview. Sorry, stop there. Yes, within, um, how do I put this? There is within the brain of the human being and most animals a trigger that once this trigger is thrown, it's almost impossible to go back, such as with cocaine use, other things. So too in homosexuality has been demonstrated that especially if there has been a sexual event at a very young age, it's virtually impossible to throw that trigger back. First of all, what is the name of that trigger? I always forget, and I'm try I can't even find it on the internet anywhere having to do with homosexuality. But there's a psychological name for that. Can you tell us what that is? I, I don't know the formal name of that, but I know what you're talking about. Uh, if, if I'm getting your question right, this, this um, gets to the nature of homosexual inclinations. As Aristotle said, some seem to be by, you know, have this kind of like by nature, and others it's acquired because of sexual abuse early in life. Of course, sexual abuse uh, early in life is one of the common uh, causes of the homosexual inclination. And of course, the person experiencing these inclinations is completely guiltless. I mean, they, they were abused. It's, it's, it's a terrible, terrible thing. Um, I, I, however, having worked as a professional actor in New York many years ago, I've lived in the homosexual subculture. I was in plays where the majority of actors were homosexual, the director was homosexual. I saw recruitment. I, I know they recruit. I've seen successful recruitment. I had to physically push people away. In fact, I tried to get out of a jury once that was on a sexual harassment case, and the judge said, of the prospective jurors, have any of you been subject to sexual harassment? And a number of women raised their hands, and so did I. <laughs> so the judge said, okay, buddy, come up here. What's your story? So I described that to him, and it didn't work. He didn't, I still had to sit on the jury. <laughs> let me, let, I think I can answer this analogously for you. Not only have I known a lot of homosexuals, I think I've known even more alcoholics. Now, there may be in some alcoholics a genetic predisposition to al alcoholism. They, they just, their bodies can't tolerate alcohol. Now, this was famously said of American Indians. Therefore, uh, if they take a drink, they can't stop drinking, they'll get drunk. Now, does that mean it's okay for alcoholics to drink? Does that mean that an alcoholic, because of this unfortunate predisposition, loses his free will? Does that mean that an alcoholic is no longer morally responsible for getting drunk? When a policeman pulls him over for wavering through the lanes? Did you say, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were an alcoholic. That's fine, go on. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Do we have an alcoholic pride day? Do you march in the alcoholic pride day? No. So why do we have a homo, uh, LGBT pride day? It doesn't matter what the source of the predisposition is. 
if there's a, no one has proven there's a genetic component to this, by the way. Some, some homosexual scientists who are straight shooters say, we've been looking for this, we can't find it. I mean, there are ge genetic components in almost everything. Whether you like your pizza with salami or not, you know, there's probably some, but it's, again, having a, uh, we all have disordered predispositions. We all are predisposed to certain vices. We all do. Some of them are particular hardships, such as those suffered by alcoholics or by homosexuals. But it doesn't change the nature of drunkenness or of sodomy. They're still evil. Does that help? Thank you. Okay. <laughs> We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.